Tom Wilkinson is a, is a lecturer in the history of architecture at Birkbeck University in London and history editor the Architectural Review. He has written a brilliant essay that caught our eye titled Life in Ruins, the Fetishization of Decay in Contemporary Architecture. Uh, he's also a longtime friend of the program. Tom, welcome. Hi, Jonathan. Great to speak to you again. Glorious words both there in, in your title, the fetishization of decay, and also in, in the piece, an expression a bit taken with, the, the patina of industry, you call it. Can we start with that as an idea? It's something that's rather ubiquitous in our built world right now. Yeah, there seems to be this fashion to reuse buildings, which makes a lot of sense in the current climate, faced by ecological crisis. That seems like a good thing. But there's a fashion to reuse buildings and to keep this pattern of industry. So to retain marks of use, crusty surfaces, rusty bits of metal, and I wondered what that was all about. That's that's how the piece started off. I mean, I must say that I like it. I like the phenomenon, generally it's, speaking. It's sort of that, that Manhattan Manhattan loft aesthetic, isn't it? It's a... Yeah. So that's, that's where I sort of speculatively propose that it's come from. But I must say that that is quite speculative um, because it's everywhere now. I mean, I guess as from what you're saying, I guess there must be examples there as well. Indeed, yes. I mean, any... any, any... Any cool space uh, worth its salt has a lot of exposed pipes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that must. I think that must come from it's deindustrialized spaces, isn't it? That got reused as art spaces, and I'm guessing that that was in so, uh, Soho in Manhattan, where all those lofts got reused as studios. Think about Andy Warhol's factory yeah. in the sixties, and then that aesthetic got picked up and exported, sometimes by massive global chains like Starbucks, if I can mention one, with its exposed brickwork. And it's become sort of ubiquitous in domestic spaces, workspaces, cafes, restaurants, art spaces, you name it. Can we nestle that idea against the other one that I mentioned, this, this, the, the fetishization of decay from your title? What do you mean by that and how are these two things related? Yeah, so... In some senses, it's fairly inoffensive, this uh, this aesthetic, so it may seem a bit silly to get worked up about it. But um, I was thinking more about some recent architectural projects that have been quite celebrated, partly because they use older spaces. But they often do have these little um, flourishes like, yeah, leaving tile work left, leaving bits of wallpaper left. And I started to think, what what is all this about? Because, you know, you, you can reuse a building and you don't have to leave bits of grotty tile on the wall. It's strictly fact, an it option, yes. It happens every day. People reuse buildings, people redecorate. So what's this, what is this aesthetic really about? And, you know, if I was, if I was a mad right-winger, I might call it virtue signaling, I suppose. From a certain perspective, it looks like people are saying, hey, look at me, I'm reusing this building, aren't I terribly ethical and virtuous? But I do think there's also an element of fetishization going on, which is what you asked me about. So 
by fetishization, I don't mean fetishization in a kind of Freudian sexy way. I mean it in a more Marxist way. I mean that people are treating these objects in a peculiar manner and sort of endowing them with a life of their own. And they're full of, they, they seem to be full of mystery, full of glamour, which is weird because they're quite tatty, right? Um, <laughs> and yeah, in, in, endowed with this sort of quite hard to uh, define quality, which makes them attractive and appealing. Take it, take it to a fairly famous case, and and you you spend some time on this on the essay. The the Salah Beckett, uh, a, a famous architect, famous building, and and one that is a a real example of of what you're talking about. Yeah. So this is a theatre in Barcelona, um, which was opened in 2014 by a local practice called Flores and Pratt. And this, this is an old working men's club, basically, that they turned into a theatre or a home for a, an existing theatre. And it was published all over the world when it was completed. It was very widely celebrated. And they spent ages working on this project. And the thing that was remarkable, I mean, it's nearly 10 years ago now, it, mm. But the thing that was remarkable about it at the time was the way that it retained so much of the existing fabric of the building. It retained tile work. It retained this very rough pattern on the walls from the original paint job, which has really taken a bashing over the years. A lot of the original woodwork has been retained or sometimes pulled up and reused elsewhere in the building. And they've got a very distinctive aesthetic sensibility. And because it was such an enormous success, the building has had a huge influence around the world. And it's inspired a lot of other people to use a similar approach. But the thing that struck me about it is that the architects said they wanted to show the utmost respect to the building. <laughs> and I thought, well, what does it really mean to respect a building what are they talking about there and i think that what's going on here is perhaps a, a, a wee bit of a guilty conscience because this is in an area of barcelona that has been i mean the whole of barcelona is a sort of nightmare of gentrification these days but this area is its ground zero in some senses it's where the olympics were held in 1992 um, it used to be a working class industrial district in fact and now it's full of art spaces, microbreweries, and theatres like this one. And this theatre isn't just a gentrifying force in this gentrified district, but it occupies a former working men's club. So I feel that what the architects are trying to do here is try and retain and respect some marks of that former, former life, that former working class life in the neighbourhood. But really, there's, there's nothing left of it at all. It's become a decoration. It's become a fetish. And the point of this is, as you say, that this has become uh, a, a model for so many other buildings, that the, the effect was so well received, was so celebrated, that this has been repeated again and again. And, and in similar situations, similar contexts of a gentrified presence in a place that was once, you know, formerly very much a working-class area. Yeah. So... 
it's happening all around the world. There, another example that I that I mentioned is a art museum slash luxury hotel in Cape Town. Um, <laughs> the two so readily done. combined. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and there were I think there were probably sound economic reasons for doing that, but um, it was designed by a British designer. He's not an architect. Thomas Heatherwick is very famous these days. Um, and it occupies an old grain silo. So, you know, it's one of those great hulking concrete objects. Very grand if you've got a taste for that sort of thing. A bit awe-inspiring, maybe. And almost impossible to adapt because they're made out of solid concrete. And inside you've got all of this complicated structure. It's very hard to slot anything new into that. It's got these great big tubes running down the inside of it, which he's carved out to create this quite spectacular atrium. Mm. And he talks about this building having a soul. And I've never known what that means when people say that, but I suspect that something similar is going on here. It's got this kind of, it's endowed with this mystical source of energy he, he's telling us. And what this, what this is, is actually it's a reference to this former this former use as a industrial installation, this former use as a center of working class labor, but it's been transformed into quite a glittering facility for the display of uh, blue chip art pieces and for people to stay on top in these quite fancy hotel rooms looking out over the, uh, over the bay. How how is this different to the the, the sort of the the, the fetishization of the ruin uh, in, in like the eighteenth the nineteenth century and that that pre modern time of the the crumbling abbey as a, mm. a a feature of art and but also of you know the the, the bucolic dream that was a thing that was was cut short by the first world war and by by modernism but to that point there's those crumbling structures were revered. Is this not similar? It's a good point, and I think that there is a similar... It's in that lineage, for sure. You know, this interest in the ruin goes back a long way in Western culture to romantics. And I do think there is a difference, though, in this current version of that of that ruin culture. Mm-hmm. And the aspect that I was particularly interested in was the idea of industrial ruins, which a lot of these buildings seem to be either literally or to be connotating this idea of the industrial ruin. But one, I think we can look back a bit more recently to something that had a big impact on this, this, this modern ruin culture, and that's the Second World War, which in a lot of cities around the world obviously produced an enormous quantity of ruins. And then modernist architects were just, just around that time gaining the upper hand. So this meant that modernists, for the first time, really had to deal with restoring or, or rebuilding ruined buildings. And there seems to be a bit of a contradiction there, doesn't there? Because, you know, there's this idea that modernism is all about making it new, to use that Ezra Pound phrase. <laughs> um, now they're dealing with, unfortunately, yeah, Ezra Pound. Um, unfortunately, uh, but, but now they were dealing with ruins. And how did they get around that? And there's a very famous example in Munich where an architect, Hans Dolgast, 
had to restore the Alta Pinacotech. That's the old art museum, which had been hit by a bomb right in the middle of it. And it's a grand old neoclassical building. And what he did was he didn't go full throttle modernism. He restored it by sort of continuing the facade with its graceful arched windows and its pilasters. But instead of pilasters, we've got metal um, struts, which are now holding up the roof. And instead of the sort of um, original stonework, we've got a slightly pinky brick. So he's using industrial materials, Mm. modern materials, to restore this older building. And that had a huge impact. And I'm sure you and your listeners will be familiar with the um, Neues Museum in Berlin, which was restored by David Chipperfield in the 90s and 2000s. And that continues in this lineage of restoring war-damaged buildings, because the Neues Museum was still a bomb site, basically, um, and retaining the marks of bomb damage. And that kind of approach has this kind of moral function mm. to it because what what it's about is not hiding the, 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 the marks left by the Second World War, not pretending that that didn't happen, which obviously in Germany, particularly directly after the war, was quite a controversial approach. So because this approach developed in the wake of um, fascism, there are examples in Italy as well as in Germany, it's always retained this sort of quality of being, of being a, a moral approach to restoring buildings, retaining this ruin factor. But one of the things I say in, in my essay is that it seems to have got kind of detached from its context mm. of the ruins of Nazism or fascism. And now it has been sort of sprayed out everywhere. And I think that one of the reasons for that is because it's acquired this moral quality from its original context. But now you get examples um, where it seems peculiar and less appropriate. And I could cite one of those if you'd like. I don't want to be particularly mean about um, English Tompkins. It's a British practice. They have a very good architectural practice. But they restored an art centre in South London, in Battersea, and they were working on the building when it caught fire, nothing to do with them. And instead of restoring the interior after the fire, they sort of left the marks of the fire so that you can still see them. That's just getting silly. (laughs) Yeah, it made me think, hang on, what what is the point in this? No one died in this fire. It's not a world historical event. It's not, you know, like... Um, the Allies bombing Munich. Yeah, so I don't understand uh, what sort of historical justification there is for retaining these 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 marks, these patinations. Where where is that 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 respect for the building in quotes of, of Salah Beckett is is a, a, about evoking the 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 absent working class is is <laughs> is a, an exculpation of the gentrification. It's that that's its its moral claim. That's my take on that, yeah. Um, and we get other examples of that, some of which are quite witty, a bit more sort of perhaps a bit more self-critical. There's one in, in Germany, to stay in Germany, um, in Potsdam outside Berlin, a very interesting 
German architect, architect um, called Brandel Uber has um, turned an old factory in Potsdam into a house for himself, I believe, which he's called the Anti-Villa. And to, to conjure the scene for your listeners, Potsdam is a nice town, quite historic. There's an old palace there built by, I can't remember which Prussian king, but one of them. Um, and it's a place where you might have a villa if you're a rich person in Berlin. And what he's done though is he's taken this factory, which actually looks a little bit like a villa. And also importantly, this area was part of East Germany. So this was an East German factory. So he's taken this factory, which was disguised as a villa, and he's turned it into a sort of slightly monstrous concrete hulk um, <laughs> by knocking huge windows in the front of it and leaving them sort of raw and ragged around the edges spraying concrete all over it, which it didn't look like that before, um, and leaving the concrete unfinished and giving it a flat roof, which it didn't have before either. So, you know, goodness knows what the neighbours must have thought about this. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> it's, almost, it's almost an absence of confidence. I mean, there's a, a, a needing to ground yourself, of not, not having the, the confidence to pr produce your own modern vision and to have to ground that in, in something lost. I'm, I'm tempted to complicate this with Albert Speer and his idea of ruined value, but... Yes, <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting one because obviously, you know, that complicates what people were doing to the ruins directly after the war um, in Germany. And perhaps it's you could take it as a ironic comment on Albert Speer because, you know, the, the ruins of their thousand-year right came a lot sooner than they might have hoped. Um, they wanted them we, to be glorious and, and, and covered in vine, but... Yeah, they wanted them to look like Roman ruins, but, yeah, it, I think they were hoping for them to come, you know, a bit further down the line in their thousand-year right. Is, is, there, is there an element, though, in this... Uh, uh, in some of the buildings that you've mentioned of the, the, the public taste dwelling in those, you know, the, the previous the previous building use, that I'm much more comfortable in this environment, therefore the modernisation of this space needs to contain elements of that for my comfort. Is it also an aesthetic dimension to it? That is often the case when buildings get reused, but I think that's not necessarily part of this phenomenon because I think actually... Well, I mean, I don't want to ventriloquize public opinion because that's a mistake that critics often make. You know, I think the public think that, well, I had no idea, I haven't done a survey. <laughs> but my feeling is that actually the aesthetic that we're talking about might be quite repellent to quite a lot of members of the public because it is tatty. Mm. Um, it's often using a lot of exposed concrete. And I imagine that you know, a, a lot of the neighbours say of the Zeitz Mocha Art Museum in Cape Town that I was talking about, might have preferred it if they'd knocked down the grain silo and built a nice shiny new museum instead. Or, And particularly in this case in Potsdam, this, this anti-villa by Arno Brandlhuber, I'm sure the neighbours were horrified <laughs> um, by what he did to it. And I think going back to what you just said, I think in some instances it, it might seem like a lack of confidence, but I think Brendel Huber is actually being uh, typically um, bloody-minded here. 
quite so quite hmm. lack of confidence. I think he's making a very interesting comment about the ruins of East German industry, and you know, if you know anything about the history of the the reunification of the two Germanys, this is a sensitive topic because a lot of the people who were working in state-owned industries in the East were out on their ears because they all those industries were gobbled up by West German firms and often closed down. And then these people were, you know, out in the cold of the capitalist experience of having to compete on the job market. Um, so to return a, or to turn a former East German factory, actually a, a lingerie factory um, to add to the, the complication, the, the, the humor perhaps, I think, of this story, to turn it into a really sort of ghostly looking remnant of a factory in, in this particular place, in this sort of quite uh, luxurious villa district, I think is a, is, is a um, Brandel Huber making quite a bitter joke about gentrification. Hmm. About German post-war history, post-reunification history, and what what remains of industry. They're potent symbols of a, of a reality of, of late capitalism, I guess. I mean, the, the idea of a of a grain silo, something as as fundamental to existence as the, of a container for maize, being converted to a luxury hotel and gallery. I mean, it, it's it says much about our modern world. It does, it does. And there are plenty of examples. You know, Tate Modern is another example of that, which has mm. been very, very influential. Tom, thank you. It's fascinating ideas and and exquisitely expressed uh, in Tom's essay, Life in Ruins, the Fetishization of Decay in Contemporary Architecture. We will place a link to that uh, on the blueprint page of the Radio National website. As ever, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Tom Wilkinson, a lecturer in the history of architecture at Birkbeck University of London and history editor at the Architectural Review. This is Blueprint, ABC RN. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.